Um, maybe because of maturity level or experience, or maybe I didn't know enough in my mind about the subject matter, and I was a little intimidated by that assignment, perhaps. I feel uniquely qualified to teach this lesson, and let me tell you why. When I was a young man of 16 years old with much more hair and much less common sense, I took a job at the local Food Lion grocery store, started as a lowly bagger, and worked my way up, I think, to a cashier. I think that's a promotion, I'm not sure. And then worked my way up from there to being a produce clerk. I am no Tom Malgieri. I'm not here to say that I am. He is the godfather of modern produce, so I'm not claiming that title. But I did get to work in the produce department for about a year. I got bumped from $5.75 an hour to $6.25, and it was high times at my house. I got to wear a shirt and tie and a green apron, and I really felt special. Uh, and it was a really interesting experience. And I got to, among other things, inspect fruit. And let me tell you something. It's pretty easy pretty easy. Now Tom might correct me later, but here, here's what I gathered about inspecting fruit. When it was time to inspect the produce, whether in the middle of the shift or at the end of the night, you go out there and you, you look over everything and you check for any fruit that's got a bad spot or a bruise or it's been dropped or it just looks too ripe or uh, something's happened to it and you just take that fruit and you take it to the back and you throw it away and you're done inspecting fruit. And you bring new fruit in and you replace the fruit that's bad and your job is done. And, and really there's no PhD required, no uh, executive training program. I never came home at night with a stack of material and said, Mom, I can't have dinner tonight. I've got to brush up on the ripening cycle of a mango. No, nothing like that. Because inspecting physical fruit is not really that difficult of a thing. It's pretty simple, actually. To look at something that's, you know it's supposed to look this way. You know what an apple, a good apple looks like or a good banana looks like. And if you see anything out of place, anything wrong, it's easy to spot, isn't it? You can spot bad fruit at your house, can't you? You throw it away when it's bad or you give it to your kids. I mean, you, you don't want to eat it. But it's pretty simple. And I, I got to thinking that spiritually speaking... There are some connections to my experience in the produce department at Food Line, and maybe you've noticed this. Finding fault in other people is not hard, is it? It's not hard to, to find fault in other people, to inspect them, if you will, and to know what they should be doing in your mind, and, and to find anything that might be out of place is not difficult. You don't have to look very long, do you? You could look at my life. If you look long enough, and it probably wouldn't take long, you could spot a number of things, well, that needs some work. And that's not a very good attitude, and, and that was probably the wrong decision in this instance, and you shouldn't have said that, or you shouldn't have said it that way, and they didn't deserve what you just said to them. You could find fault. It's not hard. And I just wonder if we could ask the question tonight, is that what God is asking from us when we talk about inspecting fruit? 
Is, is God saying, I want you to go around the church and I want you to find everything wrong. I want you to be just zoned in and, and, and tuned in to every mistake that everybody makes around you and I want you to point it out. Is that what we mean? Is that what God has asked us to do as fruit inspectors, if you will? Well, the answer, biblically speaking, is a little more complex than a yes or no answer. So let me just say the answer is yes and no. Okay? It's yes in, in the following sense. The Bible does teach as a critical aspect of what it means to be in the body of Christ that we are accountable to each other. Isn't that right? We have a responsibility toward each other to make sure that sin does not creep into our lives individually, collectively, or both and cause problems. God has set up the church in such a way that we have been called, yes, commanded, to pay attention to ourselves, to examine ourselves. And that if we see something going on in a sinful way amongst the body of God's people, we have a responsibility, don't we? The Bible says in James chapter 5, verses 16 and 19, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so that you may be healed. You've got to do a little bit of inspecting to do that, don't you? You've got to inspect yourself, certainly. When the Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any trespasses or transgressions, you who are spiritual should what? Well, just don't do anything. That's not your responsibility. No, you should restore him. Right? And if you're going to restore somebody, you've got to notice that they're caught in a transgression, don't you? You've got to do a little bit of investigating and inspection to know if somebody's having that kind of problem. Paul talked about a situation in the Corinthian church in chapter 5 where some sin had gone unchecked for a long period of time. There was rotten fruit in the produce department. And Paul said, you better deal with that. You better inspect that and you better take action or you're going to have a more serious problem. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, if someone sins against us, we're not to just do nothing. Go talk to them about it. Go tell them how that made you feel and, and, and go to someone else if that doesn't work. There's a process. You've got to do a little bit of judging there, don't you? The Bible tells us in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, if, if a person is stirring up division, what, do what? Well, just ignore it. No. You've got to warn them once and then twice and then have nothing more to do with them. That person is warped and sinful. They're a rotten piece of fruit. And if you don't inspect that every now and then, it's going to corrupt the entire body. That's the yeast that leavens the whole lump, right? Well, you go on through all these other passages that are on the board, and, and what you find is time after time after time, God says you are responsible for each other. You had better be in the business of inspecting each other's fruit. Because if you're not bad things could happen. So in that sense, I don't think there's any question, biblically speaking, are we supposed to inspect fruit? Yes. 
Yes, we are. From a certain point of view. And with a certain attitude and in a certain manner, right? But the passages that I was given, and, and they, are, they are as follows. Matthew chapter 7, if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to read all three of these as we begin tonight. Matthew chapter 7 is our first one. So let's just take that one and then we'll move to the second and the third. They're very short. I was given three passages to deal with tonight, and, and that's what we're going to do. As we look at this, uh, this idea of inspecting fruit, maybe from another angle. We know we're supposed to do it, but for the rest of the lesson, let's talk about that, what comes after that but. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. For You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now turn over to Luke chapter 6. Verse 43. Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Finally, just one verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 5. Paul says to the brethren in Corinth, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Let's talk about these passages, and let's see what we notice about this idea of inspecting fruit that might change the answer to the question a little bit. I want to suggest to you, based on what we have just read and what we're about to notice, that the answer to whether or not you or me should be inspecting anyone else's fruit could be no. The answer could be no. So let's talk about what that might mean and why we might say that. The broader context of Matthew 7 and Luke 6 is a body of teaching that we have labeled the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, as Luke might call it. And what we probably think, scholars think, is that this was a body of teaching that Jesus took around with him and shared in multiple places at multiple times, and the order gets a little bit different in certain places, but it's the same body of teaching. And if you lift something out of it, you do a disservice both to that thing that you lifted and to the entirety of this body of teaching. You with me? It's meant to be taken as a whole. So when you get to this issue of, of a good tree and a bad tree and, and knowing things and people by their fruits, we really need to back up a little bit and see what else is involved here. Because Jesus did not teach that in a vacuum. Jesus did not teach that to be plucked out and, and practiced however we see fit. 
So I want to first talk about two trees. We saw two trees in, in two of these passages, didn't we? This is a very simple concept, but I want you to, to really think about this because the idea that Jesus is illustrating here with these two trees is that you are one of them. There's only two, and you are one of them. And if you're a good or healthy tree, you're going to bear good fruit. And if you're a bad or diseased tree, you're going to bear bad or diseased fruit. Fruit And there's no third option, is there? And so what we need to think about for just a minute before we start talking about inspecting fruit, why don't we take a minute and inspect the tree? Because if you inspect the tree, you can expect the fruit, can't you? That's what Jesus says. That's exactly what you're going to get. So why don't we back up a little bit before we start talking about each other's fruit? What kind of tree are you? Because you're not going to have to wonder about your fruit if you know what kind of tree you are. So what kind of tree are you? There are two options. And Jesus talks about the fruit because you can appear to be a good tree and not be a good tree, right? That's possible. That's why Jesus said you'll know them by their fruits because you can't always tell just by looking at the tree. But there's only two options. So let's talk about what these options are. Now before we do that, please understand. Jesus is not saying, and neither am I, that a good tree, a good person, is never going to sin. In fact, that would be unbiblical, wouldn't it? 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and verse 10 say, If we say we have no sin, what are we? We're a liar. The truth is not in us. Of course you're going to sin. That's never going to be the case that you have eliminated sin from your life altogether. If you say you have, you're not a good tree. But the good tree is not perfect. Nor is it the case that the bad tree is never going to do anything right. You know people who are not Christians, they don't love the Lord, and every now and then, maybe a lot of the time, they do good things, right? So Jesus is not saying that good people never do anything bad, and he's not saying that bad people never do anything good, but he's saying if you really want to know what it boils down to, you're going to be one or the other. Spiritually speaking, eternally speaking, there's no third option. There's heaven, there's hell. You're going to one of them, and so am I, right? There's good trees, there's bad trees, ultimately. So let's talk about this good tree, because I really think that it is the equivalent of a few other things that are talked about in the New Testament. For example, 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, the good and healthy tree is probably the equivalent of the person who's walking in the light who has fellowship with God and, and trying to please God and their life is about pleasing God and, and they're trying to do the right thing and they stumble and they sin, but they repent and they confess and God forgives them and the blood of Jesus washes them continually of all their sins. That's a good tree, isn't it? That's a person walking in the light. you got the people in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 who are walking on that narrow road. They've entered through that narrow gate, and they're trying to follow God. They're trying to stay on the path. They're not always on it. They step off. They fall off. They get pushed off, maybe, but they get back on. They're good trees. You've got the people in 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, who are practicing righteousness. That's their lifestyle. These are the good, healthy trees, aren't they? Jesus and the New Testament writers use all of these different ways of saying the same 
thing. Are you, are you living your life for God or not? You're not going to be perfect. That's why I had to die on the cross. But are you living your life for me or not? Because you can certainly pretend to and not be doing it. And the proof is in the fruit. Now, back up a little bit from the perspective of this sermon. And these people, these good trees, are living a certain kind of life, aren't they? Look at this. Here's the summary that I came up with. Here's what it looks like to live out the Sermon on the Mount. They are living counterintuitively against what they want to do, and they're living counterculturally. Don't get ahead of me here. Counterintuitively, counterculturally, they've made a decision to live that way. If you haven't made that decision, if you're going along with what your heart and mind and desires tell you to do, and you're going along with what everybody else in the world is telling you to do, you're not living this life. Okay, that's not, you're not off to a good start. If you're living this life, if you're going to be a good tree, you're going to live in, a, in an influential way. You're going to be salt and light, aren't you? You're going to have some impact, some benefit to the world that you live in. When you go to school, people are going to know you're different. When you go to work... People are going to know that there's something different about you, right? You're not going to hide it under a bushel, so to speak. You're going to be different. And if you're not different, if, if you're not influencing anybody, you're not a good tree. Because this is exactly the life that Jesus has described in this entire lesson. You're going to live a life that's honest. When you look at God's law, you're not looking for loopholes like the Jews were. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Let me tell you something, it starts way before that. If you're a good tree, you realize, well, I've got to watch my thoughts. I've got to guard what I let into my mind. I've got to guard where I go and who I hang out with. I can't just look for loopholes. I can't be just looking for technicalities and trying to do whatever I want and get right up to the edge. That's not a good tree. You've got to live honestly. You've got to live humbly. When it comes to your religion, when it comes to your enemies, when it comes to your government, you've got to live humbly. You can't be proud and arrogant, or you're not a good tree. You've got to live prayerfully. You really got to pray, and you really got to trust God, and you really got to do that from the bottom of your heart. And finally, according to this sermon in chapter 6, verses 19 through 34, you got to live spiritually minded. If your mind is always on what's happening here on this earth, in your life, physically speaking, you're not a good tree. And I didn't make any of that up. Go back and read Matthew chapter 5 through 6, and you're going to find all of those things are true. That's the life Jesus calls us to. That's the good tree. And let me tell you something about that life. And you already know this if you're living it. It bears good fruit. When you do this, when I do this, it bears good fruit. There's no question. You will know this tree, won't you? You will know this teenager at school. You will know this coworker. You will know this teammate. You will know this Christian because they are a good tree. They are walking in the light. They are practicing righteousness. They're on the narrow road. They're not perfect, and they know it. Boy, they're a good tree, and they don't have to try to produce fruit. They just live the life God called them to, and the fruit grows. Now, there's a bad tree. 
And the bad tree walks in darkness. These are those people. Go back to the very same passages we just looked at. These are the people who walk in darkness. They don't always walk in darkness. Sometimes they go to church. But generally speaking, they walk in darkness. They might step out of the darkness to make uh, a good decision every now and then. But that's the exception and not the rule. They, they walk the wide road. They don't want to be alone. They don't want to be that different at school. They don't want to be that different at work. So they walk the wide road. They'll step off the wide road to be on the narrow road when there's enough people on it with them. But in general, they're on the wide road. And in general, they're practicing sin. They're doing what they want to do. They're doing what pleases them. Every now and then they make a good decision and they do something selfless, but not very often. And the bad trees, when you compare their lives to what Jesus has called us to do, this is what they look like. They live selfishly. They don't live selflessly. They don't live counterculturally. They live for themselves. They live dishonestly. They want people to think they're something that they're not. They live arrogantly. They take pride in what they do that's right. They, they take credit for things that they shouldn't take credit for. They live in an earthly manner, and, and yet sometimes they cross their fingers and hope that if they go to enough church services or enough youth activities, maybe I'll get in. And Jesus says, no, I, you're a bad tree. You're not bearing any good fruit because you're not capable of it with this kind of approach to life. There's no question what kind of fruit this tree is going to bear, is there? There's, there's just no question. It's just obvious that that will lead to bad fruit. So this is really not difficult to figure out. You and I have two options. Pick a tree. Okay, this idea that, well, you know, I'm really struggling with this. Sure, we all struggle with sin. We all struggle with walking that narrow road. But if you're struggling to decide whether or not you want to follow God or do things your own way, then you need to pick a tree. As Elijah said, you need to stop dancing between two opinions. Pick a side. When judgment day comes... Uh, you will be a good tree or a bad tree, and God will not accept, well, I'm just still working through this, Lord. Well, that won't cut it, will it? We have to make a decision. We have to count the cost, and we have to make a decision and plant yourself, no pun intended, plant yourself on the Lord's side. And, and come what may, be nourished by Him, and know that you will stand through those storms. But if you don't pick that, if you don't choose that, then you're not ever going to have any good fruit to inspect. It's just not going to happen, and neither am I. And so this is really, really important. Do, do you, have you made this decision? Who do you really live for? Who do you really serve? What do you really practice? What is your real identity wrapped up in? Where does your real loyalty lie? You know, you're finding out a lot about that lately, aren't you? Have you noticed that, that when things get, you know, troublesome and, and tense and, and tough in, in, in the world, that people's real loyalties come to the surface sometimes, and you're like, oh, that brought something out of you that I didn't know about. That's what happens sometimes, isn't it? We, we have to examine ourselves, right? Where, where am I really placing my trust and my loyalties? Is it to God or is it to something else? The idea that Christians can be 
what James calls double-minded. That we can be double-minded people who just, I just haven't decided what direction I want my life to go yet. That's completely foreign to Scripture. Jesus did not accept those followers, did he? What, what did he say to people who said, you know, I, I just got married, uh, I just bought some oxen, uh, you know, I need to go bury my father. What did he say to those double-minded people? Well, it, it sounds like you're really struggling. Why don't you come with me and we'll work through that together? He said, you're not worthy. You're not ready. When he called people to follow him, they either left their stuff behind and did it or they didn't. Some of them went away very sad because they weren't ready to do that. Pick a tree. If that sounds harsh, it doesn't sound nearly as harsh as the day of judgment's going to sound when you have picked the wrong one. Would you agree with that? I don't mean to sound harsh. I'm telling this to myself. I've got to pick a tree every day just like you do. But we do have to choose a tree Let's look at two eyes. As I noticed this in the passage, uh, and it's really kind of directly linked to the Luke passage that we read, just a few verses up, but I want to take you back to Matthew and show you a little bit of context for what we read in Matthew chapter 7 just a moment ago, because this is, is directly tied to inspecting fruit and whether or not we should be doing it. I want to talk about two eyes, and really I want to let Jesus do it. But I want you to hear what Jesus has to say about these two eyes. And this will help us answer our question. He says in Matthew 7, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is the most abused and misunderstood and misused passage in all of Scripture, in my opinion. We had somebody in our own youth group last week, we were talking about uh, some sinful practice that people engage in in the world that's obviously scripturally sinful and she chimed in and said well we're not supposed to judge and I thought you are a senior in high school you have been coming to this church and going to Bible classes for your entire life and you still think that that means that we got some work to do that does not mean that does it this passage cannot mean don't ever judge anybody for any reason. It cannot mean that because we looked at a host of passages at the beginning of this lesson that requires us to make judgments, doesn't it? You cannot purge sin from the body of Christ without making some judgments. You cannot even examine yourself without making some judgments. It does not mean don't ever judge. It does not mean condone sin. But let me tell you something else that it doesn't mean. And this is what probably most of us need to hear. It does not mean judge just as harshly and often as you want to. It doesn't mean that. What it likely means, and this is bared out in the Greek, 
And one commentator put it this way. It means do not always be judging. Don't always be doing that. Don't be a judgmental, condemnatory person. Don't have that spirit about you. Do you know anybody like that? Just immediately ready at the drop of a dime to pronounce a judgment on somebody. Just critical. These are the eyes that I want us to talk about. We're going to talk about the critical eye first, okay? And Jesus is talking about these as well. We're just going to point it out and expand a little bit. The critical eye, and Jesus talks about this, can spot the slightest mistake. The, the most nuanced of, of missteps. The tiniest of slights. The wrong tone of voice. I'm talking to some of y'all. The wrong tone of voice. The wrong attitude. The error in judgment. I, I saw that. That's the critical eye. Is it because the critical eye is trying to help people get to heaven? No. It's because the critical eye is looking for that stuff. The critical eye feeds off of other people's specs. Because other people's specs make them feel better about themselves. The word translated spec in the English Standard Version, at least, means this. The small piece of straw, chaff, or wood to denote something quite insignificant. A speck, a splinter, a chip. I don't know that Jesus could have chosen a more specific Greek word to indicate, hey, we're talking about almost nothing here. We're talking about almost nothing. Have you ever gotten a splinter? I mean, do you like splinters? I don't like them. Sometimes I don't even know that I have them. But when I have them, they're, they're kind of annoying, and, and I usually pick at them until I get that thing out of there, and sometimes Brooke has to say, put your knife down, you're going to kill yourself. <laughs> and, and you know what she says to me when I can't get it out? She says, just stop worrying about it. It will work itself out. Have you ever heard that? You know, I'm not a scientist, but, but, but the body was designed by God to push that stuff out. And 99 times out of 100, if you can't get it out, that's what's going to happen. I, I dare say there's no one in this room who has a sad story about losing a loved one over a splinter. Now, if that's you, I really humbly apologize, and you can t tell me all about it when class is over. But that's highly doubtful that you've got a sad story about a killer splinter. Because we normally deal with them or we don't deal with them, and we just... Move on. The critical eye sees all of them. And they're a huge deal to these people. And maybe you've had a boss like this. You ever had a boss with a critical eye? You ever had a so-called friend with a critical eye? Hopefully you didn't marry somebody with a critical eye, but if you do, you know you did it. Do those people make you better? Do they make you work harder? Do they make you love them more? Or do they just bring you down? I got this quote from the secular world. This was a study that was done on secular management techniques. I found this article. I want to share this with you. This is what psychologists have concluded. 
Most psychologists agree that criticism, although sometimes necessary, does not lead people to change behavior. Instead, it creates anger and defensiveness on the part of the person criticized. Communication between the parties is shackled and positive relationships impeded. That's what they say happens when somebody's just constantly critical. The article continues by saying that some people, we would call them those with a critical eye, criticize for unconstructive purposes. They seek not to improve the other person, but to raise their own self-respect at the expense of another. By finding fault or lashing out in anger at imperfections, they strive to establish their own dominance or superiority. I've even attended professional conferences where people criticized other professionals by pointing out petty errors in their reasoning or analysis for no reason but to look good. Criticism for these purposes is never constructive, guaranteed to do more harm than good to both recipient and sender. Have you found that to be true? Now maybe you're sitting there thinking, yes, I have these people in my life and it's terrible. It's awful to have to deal with it. Or maybe you're sitting there wondering, this could be me. I'm afraid this could be me. Either way, this is really important because the critical eye has made a critical mistake according to Christ. You have made a critical mistake. You have overlooked something incredibly important in your own life, right? This critical eye is in no position to inspect fruit. Did you hear me say that? That's that's what Jesus says. You're a hypocrite. You are not in any position in your current condition to inspect anybody else's fruit. Go home. Be quiet. you got work to do. That's my paraphrase. Is that wrong, though? Is that not exactly what Jesus says? Then you have the clear eye. The clear eye, and Jesus does get to this eventually. I want you to be able to help your brother with that speck, if that's what you want to do. I want you to be able to do that but you're not in any position to do it because you've got some work to do. The clear eye has done the work on itself and has removed its own beam or log. And this is what this word means. A piece of heavy timber, such as a beam used in roof construction or to bear or bar a door, a beam of wood. This is a massive piece of wood. Jesus could not have chosen two words that were any further apart from each other in meaning, could he? We've got a speck that you can barely see, and we've got a piece of wood that'll hold up your house. We went to see uh, Amy and Richard Smith's house today being built, and they've got some pretty big beams that are holding up some sections of their house. And I just imagine if I have one of those in my eye that I might notice it. Don't you think? I might, I might go through life with a speck in my eye that I don't know about, but if I don't recognize that, then I've got a problem. And I think Jesus is intentionally being extreme here and maybe intentionally comical. He might be intentionally saying to some of us who have a beam in our eye, do you really not see this? You, don't, you, you can't see this. You need to get this done first. Now, I've watched some reality shows where they go logging. You ever seen any of these? 
pretty fascinating. They, they go out there and they, they find these big logs that weigh, I don't know, tons and tons of pounds, tens of thousands of pounds. They don't go out there with a hatchet and some gloves. They go out there with a team of people, chainsaws, heavy equipment to drag these 10-ton beasts out of where they are and bring them up onto a truck and go sell them and make money. It's an enterprise. It's a process. It's not done easily or quickly. You're never going to see a show called Big Splinter where a team of people get together with all their equipment. Well, we got some serious work to do today. Look at that guy's finger. It's going to take all of us. No, but they all have to do that for a beam or a log, don't they? And here's the problem with people who have beams in their eye. And this is what I noticed about what this word means. Did you ever notice that, that this word sort of implies that this, this beam might be holding up their whole life? Their whole way of relating to people might be based on this quality. And maybe it's not that they don't see it. Maybe they just don't see it as a problem. Have you ever thought of that? And, and it might sound like this when, when, you, when you bring it to their attention. Hey, you were really mean to that person today. You were really rude on Facebook to this person when they made a comment. Well, you know, they needed to hear it, and that's just the way I am. And I'm just inspecting fruit. And I'm afraid that, that Jesus would say to them, you know what, you're the one with the problem. And before you get on Facebook and before you let somebody know what you really think of them, you got a little bit of work to do. In fact, you got a lot of work to do. Get your chainsaw out. Get to work on that log in your own life. And then maybe we can use you in the produce department. Isn't that what he's saying? If you and I are critical people and all we ever notice about anybody in the church is what they've done wrong then maybe we should stop doing that until we can figure out why we're doing it. I've struggled with this in my own life, and I've had to do some work, and it's not been easy to get some beams out of my own eyes. Specs are irritating in the lives of other people, but they're not God's biggest problem. Logs are. And the, generally, the people with the logs don't know that they have a problem or they won't admit it. So let me ask you a question. Which eye are you? Are you the critical eye or are you the clear eye? Odds are, if you're the clear eye, you have done some work to get to that point. You have let the Word of God penetrate to the very heart of who you are and why you do what you do, and you have made some changes. You have let it bear you open and, and cut to the quick of your life, just like Hebrews says that it's going to do, and you've allowed that to happen, and you're better for it, and now you can actually inspect people's fruit and help them be better instead of running them away with your criticism. There's powerful teaching here because the Bible is very clear. Yes, you're accountable to each other. Yes, you need to be inspecting fruit. But let me tell you what the Bible is more concerned about, and I wish I had time to bear this out. But the Bible is much more concerned with us edifying, encouraging, comforting, establishing, building up, stirring up, sharpening, and strengthening each other. Amen? 
That is what we're supposed to be doing. And when we do have to correct somebody, we shouldn't enjoy it. And it should be for the purpose of bringing them back, not to build our own selves up. Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Could we put the word splinters in there? Does love cover a multitude of specks? If I'm busy uh, doing some logging in my own life, I'm not likely to notice that little bitty thing that's probably going to work itself out in your life. But if I'm not willing to do my own work, all I've got to do is look around and find what you need to be doing. And it's a powerful temptation. And that's Jesus' entire point in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Is that how we really want to be treated? Is that how we really want to be looked at? If, if you really want uh, to judge people this way, get ready. Because they, they will probably judge you that way after, after a point. And God is, is probably going to judge you that way if, if that's the way you treat other people. If you show no mercy, you're not going to be shown any. So, pick an eye. We get to pick. Aren't you glad? We get to pick. Critical eye or clear eye? Let's move on to our last point. I want to talk about two axes as we close this out tonight. Paul's instructions when we go back to 2 Corinthians 13, as we read a moment ago, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Examine, test yourselves. Job number one for inspecting fruit, look in the mirror. Test yourselves. Nobody else can really do it for you, can they? They can help if you're super honest. But you're the only one that's really going to be able to work this out. That's why Paul told the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 12, work out your what? Your own salvation with fear and trembling. Don't be worried about somebody else's salvation until you work your own out. John the baptizer gave us the final word in the stakes when it comes to bearing fruit. What did he say in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10? The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, listen, that does not bear good fruit is, is uh, cut down and thrown into the fire. I didn't write that. Again, pick a tree. Pick an eye, but know that there's an axe. God's axe is laid to the roots of all of us. And if we don't pick the right tree and pick the right way to look at other people and pick the life that we're supposed to pick, we will be chopped down in no uncertain terms and thrown into the fire. I don't want that. Do you want that? I don't want that for you or anybody. But that's an axe, a very real axe that you and I need to be aware of when it comes to bearing fruit. If we're not bearing the good kind, we have no hope. That's axe number one. And John made this very clear, didn't he? If you go back to Matthew chapter 3, verse 10, when he said, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. Because that's what the Jews did, right? 
we don't need all this uh, talk about kingdom and baptism. We have Abraham as our father. And John said, don't even think about saying that because God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance or you're going to be chopped down just like everybody else who doesn't do that, right? Those are the stakes. That's a very real ax that God will use on the day of judgment. Now, Acts number two is yours and mine. And you might say, what are you talking about, Jeremy? What is the second Acts? Well, I found this really helpful quote in, in a commentary by Albert Barnes. And it's, it's a little bit lengthy, but it's incredibly helpful. So I want you to listen to this, and then we'll, we'll wrap this lesson up, okay? Barnes puts it this way. When it comes to examining ourselves, he's talking about this passage in 2 Corinthians. The best way to prove our piety or to inspect our fruit for our purposes is to subject it to actual trial in the various duties and responsibilities of life. A man who wishes to prove an axe, there's our axe, to see whether it is good or not does not sit down and look at it or read all the treatises or writings which he can find on axe making and the properties of iron and steel as valuable as such information might be. But he shoulders his axe and goes into the woods and puts it to the trial there. If it cuts well, if it does not break, if it is not soon made dull, he understands the quality of his axe better than he could in any other way. So, if a man wishes to know what his religion is worth, let him try it in the places where religion is of any value. Let him go out into the world with it. Let him go and try to do good, to endure affliction in a proper manner, to combat the errors and follies of life, to admonish sinners of the error of their ways, to urge forward the great work of the conversion of the world, and he will soon see what his religion is worth as easily as a man can test the qualities of an axe. Do you get it? A lot of us say, well, let me examine myself. Let me open up the Bible and see if I believe what the Bible says. Okay, I passed the test. Let me examine myself. Am I worshiping correctly? Well, I am. I passed the test. Let me examine myself. Is, is the church where I attend organized in a biblical way? Yes, it is. I passed the test. Well, those are good tests to pass, and you need to pass them, but that's not the test. You haven't taken anything out and examined it. You haven't done anything in the real world that's beneficial to anybody. That's not fruit at least not all the kinds that God is talking about. Let me ask you a few questions in closing. Has your life produced anything of benefit to those around you? How many lives have you impacted this summer because of what you learned about love? How many people have come up to you at school or work and said, how can you be such a joyful person in the middle of everything that's going on right now? Have you grown in your ability to have peace in your own life and heart no matter what happens on the news and no matter what someone posts on Facebook and whether or not everyone in your circle agrees with you about masks and vaccines? That's real world examination, isn't it? Have you passed that test? Are you patient with people? Especially other Christians who don't agree with you on everything. Or does the log in your eye tell you you're allowed to bite their head off? 
if they're wrong about something? Are you kind to Democrats? And if there's any Democrats in here, are you kind to Republicans? And if you're anything else, are you kind to all of them? And I know what you're thinking. Well, I disagree with everything. That's fine. You don't have to and shouldn't agree with some of those beliefs and policies, but you don't have a right to not be kind. You just don't. And if that's the fruit that we're bearing, unkindness, that's not a fruit of the Spirit, is it? That's a diseased fruit. Are you known in your circle of influence for your goodness? Is your faithfulness to, to God, to Bible study, to evangelism, to building up the church, has it grown in the past year? Are you gentle with your spouse, with your kids, with your employer, with your employees, with your elders? Are you gentle with the minister that you just disagreed with? Or the teammate who dropped the ball? Are you increasingly more capable of controlling your desires and your emotions and your fears and your habits, or are they controlling you? Are you offering true worship to God, or are you just content to pretend that you are? Are you swinging your axe at all? Or are you content to admit, yep, I've got an axe. It's got a handle, and it's got a blade, and I bet you it would cut something if I took it out to the forest. Pick an axe. Sharpen yours or face his. It's as simple as that. When it comes to bearing fruit, inspecting fruit, it's all important. But what's more important is that every individual person in this room understands that the fruit that's at the top of the list to inspect is mine. And that job never ends, does it? I want to be a good tree, and I know you do as well. And we are to do this. Don't, don't misunderstand as Christians, we are to inspect fruit. But the purest version of that starts with an honest evaluation of me. And when I venture out to help you, boy, I better be careful how I do it. And it better be loving and gentle and for the right reasons. So tonight, maybe... If you're anything like me, this, this is a hard lesson for me. I'm not standing up here as anybody who, who can uh, stand above you and preach this at you. This hurt me. And it's caused me to do some work. And so maybe it's hit you that way. And if it has, I just beg of you, don't go home content to be a bad tree or to be caught in the middle. Just determine that you're going to be a good tree from tonight forward and, and just watch the fruit start growing. I know it's hard. This group of young people over here, I, I don't know that any of us really understand how hard it is for them. It's harder than it's ever been. But Judgment Day is coming. The axe is laid at the root of the trees. And not every invitation should say this, but if you're not ready for that... Don't leave this building until you are. God expects fruit, doesn't He? Every minute of every day, He knows your heart, He knows your intentions. And if you need to make a change, if you need to repent, 
privately or publicly. If, if you want to become a Christian tonight, you're ready to plant yourself in Christ. You want to repent of your sins and be buried in baptism to, to rise in a, a good tree and to walk in the, in the new creation that He will make of you, then we are here to help you tonight. I know there are others uh, who will come up to this front pew and put their arm around you and give you whatever you need tonight. So if you have a spiritual need, don't sit there and do nothing. Inspect yourself, examine yourself, and respond to the Lord's invitation if you need to tonight as we stand and sing. weekend. Uh, we'll close in prayer at this time. Let's pray. Our God and our eternal Father in heaven, we come to you now and before your throne and we beg that you would prick our hearts with the message that's just been given, that if there's any hardened heart or closed mind, that you will open that mind, that you will Soften that heart and let the message Jeremy's brought from your word enter into it. Pray that each of us will leave here inspecting ourselves, looking at our souls, examining ourselves as to whether we're in the faith. Thank you so much for Jeremy and his family and the impact that they have on so many and the way that Jeremy uh, communicates your word. We thank you for him and Pray that you be with him and his family as they try to labor for you uh, each and every day. Thank you so much for your word uh, that comes into us and sharpens us and allows us to know your will for our life. We pray that we will search it out, seek your will for us each and every day. Thank you so much for this whole summer series. Uh, the ability we've had to come each and every week and question whether we are bearing the fruit of the Spirit in our life. We thank you for your Spirit that you've promised to all those who are faithful, who obey. We pray that we'll always live by that Spirit. 
in love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Thank you so much for this congregation. We pray that you bless us this weekend as we try to make an impact in this community through Harvest Weekend. Pray that many will come and uh, guests will come and uh, be impacted and moved by your word. Thank you so much for the elders of this congregation, the shepherds who look over our souls. Bless them and help us to make their jobs easy. Thank you most of all for Jesus Christ, the blood that he gives us and extends to us. Pray that we'll take advantage of it. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.